You can be seated. And as you are, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. God, we come before you this morning and we know that we have one and only one hope in life and in death and that hope is Christ alone. And so we've gathered together this morning in his name and our desire is to lift up the name of Jesus Christ so that men might be drawn to him so that people might come to know Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior and that those who trust in him would know him better and would love him more. Father, we, we praise you. We praise you for this day. And Lord, as we as a church body this morning gather together, as we unite our hearts in prayer, we pray, God, for the church in our nation. We pray for the American church. Once privileged, and yet now it may be that we will potentially face more persecution than ever before. And Father, we grieve as we think of that possibility, but we also realize that privilege in many ways has polluted the American church. Privilege has in many ways created a cultural Christianity that is often very unchristian. It's created a nominal Christianity, churches with many who have a false assurance of their salvation, people who are Christians in name but not in nature. And so, God, we pray this morning as we think of the church across our nation, we pray that you would revive your church in our land, in America. Because, God, we realize only an awakened church, only people in a revived condition are going to be able to make a dent on the society that we're living in. So, God, would you strengthen your people, remind us today that our most sacred privilege or one of our most sacred privileges is being accused of advocating the historic Christian faith. God, May we never fail to deserve such an accusation and help us to face graciously and joyously the privilege of suffering any reproach that we may for your name. Father, we also on this Mother's Day Sunday pray and give thanks for the mothers who are here in our service this morning and our mothers who are not here today. But we also pray, God, for women who long to be mothers this morning. We pray for mothers who've lost a baby or maybe a child at even an older age. We pray this morning for children whose mothers have died and others who may have never known their mother. We pray for mothers here and elsewhere estranged or distant from their children and children here or elsewhere estranged and distant from their mothers. And God, we pray for single moms. And we pray your blessings on these who care and who love. And we pray that you would strengthen them. And particularly, God, we pray for the mothers who stood before us earlier in our service with their husbands to dedicate themselves and their children to you, God. 
We pray also for all who have done the same in our church before today and others who will do so in the future. We pray that they will continue, these moms, these dads, that they will continue to grow in Christ and that they would grow in their sincere faith. And we pray that a sincere faith would come also to dwell in their children. We pray for the mothers in this church that they will be to their children and grandchildren what Lois and Eunice were to Timothy in the Bible. We pray that their children, the children of our church would come to know the sacred writings from childhood, the writings which are able, your word, God, which is able to make them wise unto salvation because their moms and grandmothers, because their fathers and grandfathers have taught them and modeled for them your word. And God, finally, this morning, we pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. We pray that many hearers would come today to have a sincere faith and that those here with a sincere faith would, in view of God's mercy, that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, God, and acceptable to you, since this is our spiritual service of worship. And God, show us today what it looks like to live a life day by day of worship to you, particularly as it relates to the things we'll see today in our text. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're making our way through the book of Hebrews, and today we've come to the beginning of the last chapter in the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look under one of the chairs in front of you and take one of the blue Bibles there, and you can turn to page 1009 and find Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to look in just a few moments at verses 1 through 6. This text talks about three things, love, sex, and money. Now let me just pause here to say that the fact that this is Mother's Day and that this is the title for the message does not, it's not something that necessarily was intended or planned, but here's what I've discovered as someone who's committed to expository preaching and particularly preaching through books of the Bible. When you do that consistently, here's what happens. Sometimes the pastor has to talk about things that he normally wouldn't. And sometimes a pastor has to talk about things when he normally wouldn't. And today would fit both of those in many ways. But because we're coming to God's word today, we know that God has a message for us on this very special day that's very important and very relevant for us to hear. So let's look together as I read. You follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Let... Brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and 
adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. I'm convinced this morning that if Christians were known for following the instructions given in our text today, that we would be very distinctive from the world and simultaneously we would also be both attractive and offensive to the world in which we live. You see, as disciples of Jesus Christ, for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, as disciples of Christ, we should be peculiar in the right ways. Particularly as we see at the beginning of our text this morning when it comes to a genuine and a gracious love for each other as well as for others. Tradition says that one man in the early days of the Christian church observed the followers of Jesus Christ and his response was this, Behold how they love one another. I wonder if that's how people would speak of the church today. We might say it this way, behold or look, look how they love one another. These verses that we're focusing on today, I think I could summarize in three sentences. Let me do that as we get started and then we'll dig into it a little bit more deeply. Number one, professing believers should be known for their love for each other and for others. Number two, professing believers should be known for honoring marriage and keeping the marriage bed undefiled. Number three, professing believers should be known for not loving money because they are unafraid and content with what they have because they have God as their helper forever. Now, as we begin to look at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 13, let me remind you how chapter 12 ends, as we saw last week. Chapter 12 ended with this application for us that we should offer, as God's people, as the people who identify as followers of Jesus, we should offer to God acceptable worship. And I really think that's what we are seeing now as we come to verse 13. What does that look like in daily life? What does it look like for us, not only when we gather together on the Lord's Day, but when we live our life day to day? What does it look like for us to live a life that is a life that is a worship, an offering of worship to God? And so that's what we're seeing as we come to the beginning of chapter 13, and we see that in regard to these three subjects, love, sex, and money. Let's look at the first of these three. Let's talk about love. Look at verses 1 through 3. Again, remember, this is how we are supposed to, in a daily way, worship God. Worshiping God is not just singing. It includes that. That's important. 
But it's also serving, serving God, serving people, serving one another in a way that shows that God has highest priority in our life in a way that brings glory to him. Verse 1 begins like this, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though imprisoned with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. One of the things we've seen as we've made our way through the book of Hebrews is that the primary theme of the book of Hebrews is, or of Hebrews is perseverance. Perseverance. The book is written to those who have a Hebrew background. That's why the name of the book is Hebrews. They're Jews. But they've confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, they're facing persecution. Threat, danger, persecution. And so the author of this book is writing to them saying that they need to persevere. You may remember that at the beginning of chapter 11, if you were here, the book of Hebrews talks about and compares the Christian life to a long-distance race, that we're to run the race and finish the race that is set before us. Perseverance. Already in Hebrews, we've seen exhortations to persevere in faith, to persevere in hope, and now at the beginning of chapter 13, to persevere in love. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Jesus said this along these lines in John 13, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Behold, how they love one another is what was said in the early days of the church. Would they say that today about those who profess faith in Jesus Christ? Notice it's called brotherly love. Because the emphasis here is that we are family if we have faith in Jesus Christ. We could say it this way, Christian faith makes Christians family. Christian faith makes Christians family and we're to love each other in a way that reflects that. Brotherly, sisterly, family love. Paul wrote to the church at Rome In the book of Romans, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. He also wrote to the Thessalonians and said this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to teach you or to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught already by God to love one another. This is something God teaches those who are his. God teaches those who are truly his to love others who are also his. And then Peter said it this way in 1 Peter, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly 
from a pure heart. It's all over the New Testament. And the one thing that should distinguish Christians from the others around them who are not Christians is the way that we love one another as well as others. And that's continued in verse 2. Verse 2 in our text says that we are to be known not only for our loves, our love for each other, but with that, our love for strangers. And particularly, verse 2 tells us how we should love strangers. We should show hospitality to those who are strangers. Now, does this refer to strangers who are brothers or to strangers who are not Christian brothers? And sisters, and the answer is, Dale knows how I do this. The answer is yes. It's both. It really is. The text is vague enough to mean at least the first and probably also the second. We are to love each other and show hospitality to each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God, but we're also supposed to do that to others also. We're to do that to others also. Now, if we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, why are they called strangers? Well, one reason could be that in the days when the New Testament was being written, Christians would sometimes travel from place to place, and when they went to a new place, it would be nice to have a place to stay with people who believed as you believed, because most of the places where you could pay and stay were places that Christians wouldn't want to stay in. They were places where sinful things took place quite often and frequently. And so this is probably a part of that, but also in connection with that, there were those in that day, it seems, from what history says, who would go from one place to another and say they were Christians so that they could stay with Christians with the intention of somehow taking advantage of them. And so some Christians in that day evidently worried that maybe people coming from another place claiming to be Christians were just imposters. And so they were somewhat reluctant and timid about taking in those who claimed to be Christians. And it's likely that the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says here that some have entertained angels unaware, he's basically saying to them, you may be afraid that you may be entertaining people who are not Christians but imposters, but think about this. You may be entertaining people who are not Christians but who are angels. And then he evidently is referring here to Genesis 18 and 19 where Abraham and Lot received strangers into their home and discovered after time that they weren't people at all. They were angels. An amazing story. And so we are to be hospitable as God's people. The word stranger here also could refer to the fact that even among Christians you know there may be some who are very different than you are, who come from a different background, who have a different culture. And in that sense, their ways are strange to us because of our background. And those are the kinds of people we should reach out to in our church, bring into our home, learn to know them and love them. I think the implication here is that the church is to be diverse. One of the things I pray for regularly is for this church to become more diverse because 
Unity in the midst of diversity in Christ is an incredible witness to a watching world. When people believe in Christ, even though they've come from different backgrounds and have different cultures and they genuinely love each other and serve each other, it is quite the witness to the world. And so that could be and possibly is a part of what the writer is talking about here as he speaks about strangers. But it could also refer to people that we don't know. And just genuinely loving people that are strangers to us. I want to mention one thing along these lines before I move on. This month, the month of May, is Foster Care Awareness Month. The last statistic that I saw said this about the Rapid City, South Dakota region in regard to foster care. There are 397 kids needing care in the Rapid City area. And yet there are only 81 foster families who are certified and are able to take foster children. I think this is a wonderful way for the church to do what this verse is talking about. To take in kids that need care to provide hospitality to kids who need care. I'm convinced that Christians in this area could put an end to the foster care crisis in our area by doing this, by providing hospitality to children who are strangers to us, but who we want to love and show Jesus to. Verse 3 continues and says this, we're also supposed to be known for our love for prisoners. For strangers, verse 2 says, for prisoners. Verse 3 says, and it says specifically, we do this by having empathy. We're to have empathy for prisoners. Now again, this was likely talking about brothers and sisters in the Christian family who were imprisoned because they were Christians at this particular time. As a matter of fact, we know from Hebrews chapter 10 that the people that this book was written to had experienced that. Listen to these words. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hardship or a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and to affliction and being partners with those who were treated such. For you had compassion on those in prison." So already the writer of Hebrews has encouraged these professing believers that he's writing to for having done this because some among them had been put in prison and had been publicly mistreated because of their faith. Others of them had not, but we read a little bit after this text that some of the other ones lost all of their property. Their property was either confiscated legally or through vandalism was destroyed. And yet the text says they rejoiced because they knew they had a better city. They had a better future. This is what God calls his church to do. To love those who are often unlikely to be loved. Among us, those who are different from us, and beyond us, those who are different from us and who are suffering. Listen to what Jesus said 
along these lines in a parable in which he's referring to himself when he refers to the king. Jesus said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. At the end of chapter 12, what did we talk about? An unshakable kingdom, right? We just came to that this past Sunday. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, a prisoner, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Listen, when we entertain strangers, we may be entertaining angels. When we show compassion to people in need, we may be doing it to Jesus. There's a sense in which the way we love the least, among us and beyond us, when we love the least, we are showing our love for Christ. So love, love should characterize the people of God more distinctly And more vividly than anything else. And I think that's why he begins the applications of chapter 13 with this subject. But let's look at verse 4. Now let's talk about the second subject, sex. What does it look like for us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ in our daily lives to glorify and worship God in relationship to the subject of sex? Verse 4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Straightforward. What does it mean? To understand verse 4, it's important, it's imperative for us to understand what the Bible teaches in this area. And I could just summarize it simply like this. According to the Bible, any sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sexual immorality. That's what the Bible says, and that's what this text is teaching us. So how do we do this? How do we as Christians honor marriage? What does that mean? What does that look like specifically? How do we honor marriage I think to put it simply, we could do this. We could honor marriage by honoring what Jesus said about marriage. So let me give you a verse. Jesus was asked a question about marriage, related to marriage, particularly divorce, and this was Jesus' answer. In the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's what Jesus said. Now I want you to notice here three things that Jesus tells us about marriage that we should honor. First of all, Jesus tells us about the persons 
of marriage. The persons of marriage, that is, the persons who are to be married. Jesus said, from the beginning, God made them male and female. The persons of marriage. Marriage is to be, this was God's plan from creation, and Jesus confirms it here clearly, marriage is to be between a male and a female. And we honor marriage when we honor what Jesus said about the persons of marriage. Secondly, Jesus also speaks here about the priority of marriage. Notice what he says. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Do you know what that means? It means that once someone is married, their priority relationship is their marriage and not their parents. And that's an important thing for us as parents to understand. I have three daughters who have husbands. I have a son who has a wife. They should be the priority and not me and not Melody. My daughter's husband should be the priority, not me, not Melody. My son's wife should be his priority, not Melody's or my priority. We shouldn't be his priority anymore. And we honor marriage when we honor what Jesus is saying here about marriage. There is a leaving and there is a new cleaving. There is a new priority relationship. And as parents who have married children, we need to be careful that we are not pressuring our kids contrary to this priority. Demanding things, expecting things. that push them toward maybe not doing what this text is saying they should do, which is to put their marriage first. And then thirdly, Jesus says this about marriage. He speaks about the permanence of marriage in this text. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That is, marriage is to be permanent. God intends for those who enter into a covenant relationship to remain in that relationship until death do us part. But Jesus did, however, say that adultery was a legitimate basis for ending a marriage, and Paul later also wrote that abandonment and other things like it also allow for believers to be free. But apart from those things, marriage is to be permanent. And we honor marriage when we are faithful and when we remain in a relationship apart from these kinds of issues. I read this past week a New Testament scholar who said this about this topic. The early church's revolutionary sex ethic was that sex was only for male and female within a mutual whole self-giving, super-consensual, lifelong covenant. That's what marriage is supposed to look like biblically. Based on a study of the terms in the New Testament that are often translated sexual immorality, this scholar went on to say this, this means that anyone who within marriage exploits or abuses is violating the Christian sex ethic just as much as those who are having sex outside of marriage. 
Let me be even more clear. Any sexual activity between a husband and a wife that is not completely consensual constitutes sexual immorality also. This is what it looks like to glorify God in the very intimate and personal areas of our lives. Sexual immorality is serious sin. We've seen it already in the book of Hebrews. Just a few messages back, we read about Esau, who was a counterexample of what we're supposed to do. And one of the things that's mentioned there is his ungodliness as well as sexual immorality. It's a significant thing. But there's one more thing in our text that I want us to think about, and that is money. Boy, the writer of Hebrews doesn't pull any punches, does he, at the beginning of this last chapter. Is he's just giving random, we might say random, applications. Verse 5 and verse 6 speaks about this subject, the subject of money. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that last phrase is a quote from the psalm we heard read earlier this morning. The writer of Hebrews is saying this, Christians should be known for their contentment instead of covetousness when it comes to money and the things that money can buy. That's why Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but went on to say, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Listen to what Paul said along these lines. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it either. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That doesn't say money is. But it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They may have well take, may have, have well as taken a sword and pierced themselves because they've caused themselves that kind of pain, the writer is saying, because of this craving to be rich, this craving that causes them to love money, to desire to be rich. I heard a pastor just this week, actually, or read, I should say, a pastor who said that in his many years of ministry, he's had lots of people come to him for counseling, and he's had many people who've come to him for counseling say, I've sinned by committing adultery, by lust, by looking at pornography. He said, but I've never had a single person that's come to me for counseling who said, I'm guilty of greed. Because we don't think we are. One is more objective than the other is the point. And we have a tendency to rationalize what we do in relationship to money. 
Because at one time we had certain things that we looked at as luxuries, but as life has gone on, those luxuries have now become to us, in our minds at least, necessities. And yet we see people who have even more than we do, so we don't think that we're at the point yet of being guilty of greed, of covetousness. The writer of Hebrews is helping us to understand something here about this issue. He's saying specifically this, discontentment is the soil in which the love of money grows. Discontentment. It's all about contentment. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other, because you cannot serve God and money. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why do we need to watch out? Again, because we don't see it for what it really is as it draws near to us and as it becomes a part of us. Here's what you need to understand about this last point. The love of money is not fundamentally an overspending problem. It is a contentment problem. It's a contentment problem. Overspending may be the fruit of the love of money, but discontentment is the issue. That's the root of the issue. And at the end of our text, there are a couple of Old Testament quotes that are brought in in relationship to this question of money and loving money. And they're interesting quotes. Jesus or the Old Testament, rather, has God saying, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What does that have to do with loving money? It has everything to do with loving money and desiring to be rich. When I was in college and for many years after college, I listened to a contemporary Christian artist whose name was Michael Card. And one of his songs that I listened to over and over came to my mind this week as I thought about the end of this text. Listen to these words. Trust in me. Keep your life free from what the love of money will do. Am I not enough for you? For never will I leave you. That's something I'd never do. Remember, these words are true. Never will I leave you. That's what brings contentment. That's what gives us true contentment. I want to finish by reading something that has come down to us from the early days of the church by way of tradition. It's called the Apology of Aristides. Aristides was a philosopher who was not a Christian, but he had seen Christians in, that, in those early days of the church, and he admired them. And he wanted to defend them to the emperor. And because he was a philosopher, he took the opportunity, and these are the words he wrote. Listen to this in light of our text today. But the Christians, O king, they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth, from whom they received commandments which they engraved upon their minds and observe in the hope 
and expectation of the world that is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery or sexual immorality, nor covet. In the hope of a recompense to come in the other world. Further, if one or other of them have bondmen and bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brothers and sisters without distinction. And they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who does not have without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. For they do not call them brothers after the flesh, but brothers after the Spirit and in God. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if possible, to redeem him, they set him free. And verily, this was his conclusion, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. Wouldn't it be amazing if lost people said that about the church? There's something new about this, about these people. And it seems like there's something divine among them. That's how we'll make a difference in this world that we're living in, in this nation that we're living in, is by loving one another and others, strangers, prisoners, believers, neighbors, by honoring marriage and doing so with kindness and humility and yet without compromise and not loving money, making it evident to other people that we really do believe that there is treasure in heaven. And that God will never leave us or forsake us. If we live this way, what difference would that make? It would make a huge difference in this world that we're living in today. And so if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, I want to invite you into the family. I want to be able to call you brother or sister because you have trusted in the same Jesus and whose death and whose blood was sprinkled for our sins. I want to encourage you today to think about the fact that the Bible says clearly that no one can come to God except through Jesus Christ and yet Jesus stands today with his arms wide open to welcome anyone into his faith family. And I would encourage you today to trust in him, to call upon him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the Bible says. Call upon him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and to lead you and help you follow him. It's an amazing 
thing to think about what we've been called to as God's people. And it's, it's hard to see how far, short, how far short we often fall. But today I want those of you who have trusted in Jesus and who are a part of this family to commit anew, asking God by the Holy Spirit to strengthen you to live a life that shows your worship of God in the way you handle these kinds of things. And as we show that to the world, it can make a lot of difference. It can make all the difference in the world. Let's bow and let's pray. God, if we who name the name of Christ, if we were known for these things, that we've talked about today, we would be very distinctive from the world and outsiders would be simultaneously offended and attracted and yet they would likely say there is something divine in the midst of them. God, we pray for that. I pray that you would so work in our hearts and in our lives that people would see that we are distinctive because of our love, because of the way we love one another, because of the way we don't love money, and because of the way we honor marriage. God, would you sanctify your people? Would you help us to see you and look to you as our true treasure? and what you've done for us as our true worth. And God, would you help us to live in a way that reveals that and reflects that for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.